welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First time listeners finding the show, welcome aboard. Always happy to have you. Hope you have had a chance to check out Counterpunch Plus. That is our subscription section. If you used to be a subscriber to the print magazine, you already know all about Counterpunch Plus. But if you are not yet a subscriber, that is where you go to get access to all of the exclusive content. We have so much there from great writers from all over the left, from a variety of perspectives on a variety of issues. Go over to Counterpunch Plus get that subscription if you can and please understand it's a great way of supporting independent media so critical in this time as we well seemingly face overlapping crises and try to deal with them on a daily basis and so many of the great people that we encounter and that we like to help promote are those who are addressing these crises and one of those really great people is with me today ray atchison ray atchison is an organizer an activist and a writer they're a director of the uh, disarmament program at the women's international league for peace and freedom uh, an author of course a number of very important contributions including Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages. That is a very, very important new book. RayAtchison.com is the website, at Atchison Ray on Twitter. Ray, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's jump right into the book. And if I'm going quickly, it's because this is our second stab at recording this. So hopefully we don't have any other issues. So Ray, tell us a little bit about the genesis of the book, Abolishing State Violence. And maybe if you could, in your answer, help to uh, help us to understand a little bit about yourself, about your past and how you got to this point in your work. Sure, absolutely. Um, so Abolishing State Violence is being put out by Haymarket Books, uh, officially released on Wednesday, July 26th. And it looks at the connections between the uh, structures of violence and also the movements to confront these structures in relation to um, police, prisons, borders, surveillance, nuclear weapons, war, and capitalism. And of course, capitalism is an overarching theme throughout all of the others, um, but also gets its own chapter at the end as a dedicated uh, structure that needs to uh, be abolished and replaced. And so my, I come to this work from anti-nuclear organizing and anti-war organizing. That's my background and sort of my bread and butter. Um, but I have also been engaged in uh, uh, movements against prisons and from that then uh, against police. And so I have approached uh, in this book a way to look at how materially um, all of these structures of violence in society are connected to each other, who's profiting from them, um, how these were created, why they were created, who benefits from them, but also looking at the movements um, that have been confronting for generations these structures and trying to learn from each other's struggles and connect up uh, the work that all of us are doing across this wide range of issues. Absolutely. And I'm going to return to anti-war organizing and the nuclear issue in a few minutes, because I think these things are so critical to discuss now. But let's just focus, if we could, uh, here in the beginning about um, abolitionism, because the book talks about abolitionism. And I feel like we all know what that means. And yet, maybe it's a word that deserves a little interrogating. So what does abolitionism, excuse me, abolitionism mean as it relates to, say, activism? Is it the same thing? 
It's a frame of reference, I think, for, for a particular approach to activism and organizing. And basically, abolition is a concept um, in the United States in particular really came from the movement to abolish slavery. And uh, in that context, it was both the undoing of slavery as a structure, the economic and political forces behind slavery, but also then the, re the rebuilding of a society that was inclusive and equitable and democratic in nature. So abolition is both about dismantling structures that are harmful or oppressive and violent, and then rebuilding in its place something that works for uh, more people. And so we can apply this to each of the different structures that are covered in this book, because each of them need to be taken down, dismantled. And in its place, we need financial investment, political investment, uh, you know, cultural community investment in alternatives that actually work for more people. Well, you just mentioned the structure of the book, and I do think it's worth noting how the book is uh, organized. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the organizing principle of the book and maybe what the common threads are? The organizing principle of the book um, really is to trace where abolition started um, and how that has informed um, prison industrial complex abolition, which is uh, one of the main ways that the, the phrase and the concept of abolition has really grown in the past few decades. And so this is both uh, the abolition of policing as well as prisons, um, but also then pulling it forward through looking at surveillance, going a little bit broader than into borders. And so at this point, we're already seeing how surveillance is connected to prisons and policing, then we're seeing how it's related to borders, um, and from borders then getting into war, um, international conflicts, uh, as well as uh, civil conflicts, um, and from there into a particular weapon uh, of war, um, which is nuclear weapons, and then going there into the broadest sort of spectrum into capitalism. And so a lot of the book focuses on the United States, but as we go through the book, it becomes wider and more global. And also an interesting thing as I was going through the book too, is an important note that um, each one of these, you know, let's call them buckets or categories has its own industry and set of industries, all of which profit off of the structures that are in place and who have a vested interest worth billions, maybe hundreds of billions of dollars to keep it that way. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's one of the interesting things in my research for this book was how many of the uh, corporate profiteers from these systems and oppression are the same actors. So not just that they work in similar industries, but that they're actually the same corporations or people that are profiting. So for example, one thing that I learned uh, during writing this book was that Sandia National Laboratories in New Mexico, which is a nuclear weapon um, laboratory, was actually one of the first uh, organizations, corporations involved in designing the the border wall um, system along the US-Mexico border. And so there's all kinds of ways in which the war profiteers are contributing to surveillance apparatus or to sending, of course, uh, weapons to uh, police forces um, and how the material realities of, of all of this is connected, but then also how the philosophical and sort of 
um, ideological approach to control, oppression, um, separation, segregation, sort of the sorting of human beings into good and bad, into these binaries um, of who needs to be controlled and who needs to be protected. It's the same throughout all of these structures of violence. And the thing about abolitionism, and I, I guess I probably intuitively knew it, but I didn't really think about it, is that this is a way of seeing that comes from the marginalized perspective. I mean, the roots of abolitionism don't, you know, they're not with white crusaders, but with black people, black people speaking up against, you know, these systems that were in place against them. And so could you speak a little bit to the idea of uh, the book and abolitionism broadly as sort of coming from marginalized perspectives? Absolutely. I relied very heavily on black feminist thought and organizing um, throughout this book. Um, and abolitionism has a history that is rooted, of course, in Black activism and organizing, particularly in the United States, um, but globally as well. Uh, and I bring this up in, in several chapters, different local work that's going on in various countries around the world. And it is always those who are being oppressed, who are being harmed. And so that's one of the things that I like best about the, the abolition framework for activism and organizing against any of these structures is that this really isn't a top-down idea. This is an idea of what is what could possibly work for um, people who are actually harmed by um, these systems of oppression. And so it's not abstract. It's not theoretical. It's actually um, born from struggle uh, and experience and perspectives of those who have been harmed. So um, there's a lot of reliance in this book um, also on queer theory and organizing um, and, uh, you know, lessons learned from sex worker organizing, lessons learned from um, the Black theoretical traditions, um, particularly Black Marxism. And so there's a, a lot that's tried to pulled in and distilled and shared uh, within this book. And I hope that one of the things that comes through is that rather than trying to, you know, say this is what we should be doing, it's more of a book that shows this is what people are doing right now. And this is what we need to learn from and build upon. So one of the other things that comes across in the book, and I thought it was an interesting it was an interesting thing to think about throughout the book is this idea of reform and whether reform is the goal here and what if not reform, what's really the goal of all of this abolitionist work? Right. So there's a there's a distinction within the abolition community between what they call reforms or non-reformist reforms. And it's uh, um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore often talks about this, um, Dylan Rodriguez, many others too. And the, the, the idea behind this concept of non-reformist reforms is that abolition, abolitionism is seeking changes that will lead to the destruction of the structure of violence rather than reform, which is more or less about tinkering around the edges to sort of humanize systems of violence. So for example, when it comes to the police, looking at um, all the calls that we often hear for more police training around bias and um, sensitivity training or um, the use of body cameras uh, and that, that kind of thing. But what, what these really do is invest more in the police. It's about giving more funding to the police for training or more funding to the police 
for um, for equipment. And it what we've seen over many, 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 many years now is that these reforms don't actually result in meaningful change. They don't stop the murder of black people. They don't reform the institution from the inside. All of these institutions were created to harm specific people, mostly queer people, black people, other people of color, anyone who's marginalized or considered different um, by the hegemonic society. And so we can't reform these institutions, but we can make changes that stigmatize the use of particular weapons or particular um, ways of operating or um, we can work to uh, defund these systems and put that funding elsewhere, invest in alternative systems um, that can actually create meaningful change in communities and in societies. And one of the other points that really comes across, and I think you do a great job of illustrating this in various ways, is that these, again, they're interconnected. So I was, I was struck by when I first got into, you know, activism around the Iraq war when I was 19 or 20 and learning about ideas like the, you know, the military industrial complex, this phrase that unlocked a lot of ideas, you know, and how things are connected. And then pretty soon you have a prison industrial complex and it makes you think about things in that way. And as I'm reading through this, book, I'm like, well, we have an everything industrial complex. I mean, all of these things are interconnected. You can't talk about surveillance at the border without talking about for-profit prisons, without talking about military contractors, etc. So the way that these things are so intimately connected, and I mean, as you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, I mean, that's modern capitalism, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's all about profiting from from harm. And it's this it's a small minority that is actually benefiting um, from these systems and structures. And we can see that as being exacerbated throughout the COVID pandemic, right? I'm sure we've all seen the, the charts of, of the profits massively um, increasing during the pandemic, but even more generally in the last few decades, corporate profits climb and inequality grows around the world. And this is, this is universal. And so um, that's one of the key things the book tries to draw out is, is how the profiteering from harm really underpins um, the sort of the continuation because so many people ask, well, if the system causes so much harm, why does it keep existing? This is why it's because of capitalism. It's because of the system that we that we have set up. Now, we hear so much about how it's just impractical, unrealistic to talk about things like abolitionism, to talk about things like disbanding police or defunding police. So can you can you speak a little bit about this idea? You already talked about it in regard to reform, but the difference between talking about things that are, quote unquote, possible and talking about things in terms of a structural analysis of them. Absolutely. So I think that. Um... The, the idea of what is possible or credible or feasible, all of that is set and determined by those who are profiting from these structures of violence. They're the ones who say we can't change things. And so, for example, in the anti-nuclear work that I do, we're always told, you know, nuclear deterrence, that's what keeps the world safe. We definitely can't get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, we would have you know, global pandemonium if we did, et cetera, et cetera. But those theories and myths are borne out by the, you know, the leaders of the nine countries that possess these weapons. The vast majority of other governments in the world, not to mention 
publics in the world see nuclear weapons as unacceptable, indiscriminate, monstrous violence, just completely inhumane. And so the vast majority of countries of governments in the world uh, have worked together to prohibit these, these weapons under international law. And we were told all through this process um, that you know we would we would never achieve this treaty um, to to prohibit nuclear weapons. Um, that we that if we got this treaty, it wouldn't change anything. It would just be words on a piece of paper. Um, so at every stage, we were told it was impossible, and we just kept pushing through those boundaries at, at every turn. And so now we do have a treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons. It was adopted in 2017, and my previous book, Banning the Bomb, Smashing the Patriarchy, focuses uh, on that project in particular which took about seven years um, to develop this specific instrument. Um, and now that we have it, what we're seeing already, even though the nine nuclear armed states have not yet joined it, we're seeing already um, government pension funds, city pension funds divesting from nuclear weapon producers. We're seeing cities around the world, including in nuclear armed states, say that they want the federal government to join, then they want to get rid of nuclear weapons. Um, we're seeing parliamentarians uh, congressional people sign on to a pledge to work for this treaty. So we're seeing a lot of action and attention to nuclear weapons that, of course, mainstream media and um, others try to keep out of the, the public discourse, because that's a big part of of the argument of what's possible, right? We're, we're not allowed to, to know what happens um, when there's good news, because then it can show others what, what is possible through coordinated collective action. And so that's, that's part of what the book tries to get into, is where have there been successes in each of these movements? How can we build and learn uh, from those, those successes? How can we celebrate those? And how can we inspire people to imagine what's possible. And I think that's another great thing about the framework of, of abolition is that it refuses to get stuck in kind of the mainstream activism of what is possible in this political moment with these political parties in this configuration. It ignores all of that and says, what do we actually want? What do we want to achieve? What do we need to achieve to actually bring peace, freedom, justice to the world. And then we work for that, even if everyone else is telling us that it's impossible. One other aspect I wanted to ask you about is the role that um, seemingly benign corporations play in all of this, right? We know the most evil ones if we follow the particular issue, right? The Correction Corporation of America, we know for-profit prisons, okay? Evil dudes, right? But then you start looking at the corporate map of all of this and you're like wow amazon data services and all of these big time tech companies and all of these uh, smaller time startups and you start to realize the the extreme complexity of the you know corporate geography of all of this and that's just one thing that i think really comes through and reading through the book as well yeah, absolutely. There's um, there's so much uh, going on behind the scenes, and there's I think especially with the sort of boon of surveillance, um, this this connection between tech companies and traditional military contractors or prison contractors uh, is really growing exponentially. Um, so there's a group called Tech Inquiry, which tracks a lot of these smaller startups as well as the big. Uh, corporations that are getting different military contracts or prison contracts and tries to map that that out. So that work is is absolutely vital. 
Uh, you mentioned nuclear weapons and, you know, you've you've spent a good deal of your career, um, you know, on this issue. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the nuclear issue. And I, I want to talk about weapons, but I want to talk about nuclear more broadly, because one of the things that we see now, and I've actually been engaged in several of these recently, is a, uh, arguments on the left about nuclear technology and whether nuclear should really be the future because of course we want to get away from oil and gas and coal and all of these energy sources and surely a clean energy like nuclear even despite its historical problems has to be the way to go for the future so i want to just give you a chance to talk a little bit about that and whether you've you're, whether you yourself have encountered any of this resurgence on the left because i remember it being very taboo for a long time because the anti-nuke movement was one of the crowning achievements of the last 50 years on the left. And so can you talk a little bit about that issue, how you see it from your perspective and all of the years that you've spent on this issue? Yeah, absolutely. So there is this difference, right, between the anti-nuclear weapon crowd and then the anti-nuclear power crowd. And I think for a long time, sort of the anti-nuclear movement encompassed both. It was both no to nuclear power or nuclear energy and no to nuclear weapons. And what we're seeing now, and very unfortunately, with uh, the climate crisis and a lot of climate activism, is that some climate activists are embracing nuclear technology as if it's a clean alternative to fossil fuels. And it's not. Nuclear energy is not a clean source of, of energy or power for our world. First of all, you've got the uranium mining, which is mostly done on indigenous lands around the world, in Australia and in, in Canada, um, in, in Congo, um, and many other places. And so um, that's extremely environmentally harmful, uh, has uh, long lasting and very grave humanitarian effects on the ground. Then you've got the fact that, of course, the materials, the uranium can be processed into weapons grade materials and transferred to nuclear weapons. So there's that aspect of the problem. Um, there's the problem of uh, nuclear power itself. Um, first of all, building nuclear power stations is not carbon neutral. Um, massive, massive industrial projects to, to build these things. Um, then you have the dangers and the risks of operating nuclear power, which are very clear from Fukushima, from Chernobyl, from Three Mile Island, from many other near risks and accidents that we've had and a lot of smaller accidents that haven't gotten the same global attention. Then we have the use, the massive use of water, of course, for cooling. Um, so that's an environmental hazard. Um, and then you have the radioactive waste storage. So um, all nuclear power plants produce waste that then has to be safely and securely stored so that it can't be turned into nuclear weapon or radiological device or um, leak into the ground and harm the environment, uh, you know, be stored in communities and uh, affect uh, human health. And so there's all of these problems with, with nuclear power that make it very clear that it is not a clean source of energy. It is not uh, the alternative to fossil fuels that we need to be investing in. And once again, uh, it's such an expensive industry as well as being a dirty industry. And there are people that are profiting from it. The industry is using the climate crisis as this moment at, at this moment to, um, to sort of re-energize the nuclear propaganda back from the 1950 that that nuclear energy would be too cheap to meter and and all of this stuff so it's just it's going backwards in time and it's um i'm really hoping that as a whole those organizing 
um, for uh, against climate change and, and, and for climate strategies don't rely on nuclear power as any kind of solution. Well, and one of the arguments that they use is the economics, right? That that if you don't go in this direction and you cut oil, gas, and coal, you're harming the poor, the disenfranchised, the economically marginalized, et cetera, right? They use this sort of inverted poverty argument to say, well, no, you're just an elitist Malthusian if you are opposed to nuclear technology and nuclear weapons. But so you can address that aspect of it, but I'd also like to ask you, is it possible to have nuclear energy without nuclear weapons and a nuclear weapons industry, or are they so intimately intertwined that you really can't have one without the other? I think the industries are dangerously intertwined, and I think the risks of um, nuclear materials being transferred to nuclear weapon programs is extremely high in the states that uh, are nuclear armed states, states that haven't joined the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. So I definitely think there are serious uh, risks there for sure. Um, and in terms of the economic arguments around uh, uh, nuclear power, it's quite the opposite. These are it's an extremely expensive um, program, uh, nuclear energy. And so what we've seen um, in many cases where states attempt to invest in in nuclear energy projects, they often get shelved because there are just so many cost overruns and so many exorbitant, unexpected um uh, fees that go along with the, the construction and the management of these facilities that it's not actually an economically viable strategy. And so as far as for the for the left, what should be, in your opinion, uh, what should be the left's position on nuclear? I mean, on the nuclear technology as it exists today, how do we approach this in terms of all of the abolitionist work that you've been talking about? Yeah, I absolutely think that the left should uh, adopt an, a policy of abolition of, of all nuclear technology. I think, you know, the, the, the nuclear era, which started um, in 1945 with the, the first test um, in New Mexico and then the use of atomic bombs by the United States government on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, followed then by the expansion of, of nuclear energy and other countries acquiring nuclear weapons, that era needs to be capped. Um, we've had it since 1945. It needs to be seen as um, a horrific period of human history. The 2000 plus tests that were conducted around the world, um, largely on indigenous land and waters, um, and that have affected all of all of humankind. Um, we all carry radiation in our bodies, no matter when we were born, from those atmospheric nuclear tests that that took place. And so, I think that you know we really need to see this as a period of history that has to have an endpoint with the abolition of all nuclear technology. And the other aspect of this too is that I feel like there is a sense of complacency about nuclear weapons to some degree. And now we have a war in Ukraine. We have a nuclear armed state, uh, you know, invading its neighbor. The potential for possibly a NATO Russia confrontation, maybe through the back door, maybe through some chance series of accidents, who knows what. And so it again reminds us that even though a war might be a conventional war, nuclear weapons, of course, raise the possibility of annihilation for all of us. Absolutely. I think this conflict has really raised uh, nuclear weapons back into the public mindset. Um, and it's important in this context 
uh, as some of the mainstream media have been reporting on, oh, well, there's smaller yield nuclear weapons now. Um, and maybe if, if one or two were used, uh, it wouldn't be that big of a deal. And there's a strange attempt in Western media to, to sort of downplay the impacts of, of a potential use of nuclear weapons or even of nuclear war, when what we know is that even the use of a quote-unquote small nuclear bomb, which the smallest are roughly the size of the Hiroshima nuclear bomb, um, is that they will have a devastating impact, um, especially if detonated over a city like in Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Um, we're going to see hundreds of thousands of civilian casualties immediately. We're going to see the destruction of entire, of entire city centers. We're going to see communications knocked out, um, economic systems knocked out. Uh, the ICRC, the International Committee of the Red Cross, has said repeatedly um, since 1945 that there is no way that humanitarian and medical workers can respond to the detonation of a nuclear weapon in a city. And they base that on their experience in Hiroshima. And so there's all of this evidence um, that we have of, of, of what the use of even a single nuclear weapon will do um, that is really being downplayed right now by, by the media. And that's extremely problematic. And we need to we need to push back on that. I do think one other thing in this moment to be conscious of is that while uh, the threats from Putin have raised the, the issue, we also need to remember that we live under the threat of nuclear weapons every single day. And so while we do have this specific case right now, we also just a few years ago had uh, the US and North Korea threatening to use nuclear weapons against each other, which was sort of compounded by that false missile alert in Hawaii in 2018. Um, and we've had many, many other instances throughout history of the nuclear armed states explicitly or tacitly threatening to use nuclear weapons against each other. But just the deployment of nuclear weapons constantly every single day on submarines and in missile silos around the world, um, this is a constant threat. So even if we don't have someone uh, taking center stage to say that they're willing to use it, all of the policies and doctrines of all nine of the states that possess nuclear weapons every single day um, are ready to use these weapons. And there's no such thing as a single nuke. I mean, it doesn't, it's not going to work like that. I was, I was reading an article about, it was related to the Russia, uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war, but it was about a study that was done, sort of a war gaming scenario that was done in 2019 that uh, laid out a scenario, a hypothetical scenario at the time of a Russian invasion of Ukraine followed by an exchange of nuclear weapons. And they said at the most conservative scenario, 1 billion dead. Absolutely. So that simulation was done by Princeton University's program on science and global security. It's called Plan A. I recommend you check it out if you haven't seen it. It's uh, They use kind of war game style graphics as a throwback to the 1980s, um, but it's very uh, current statistics today based on actual existing war planning scenarios from the countries involved. So this is not theoretical. This is what would happen based on the doctrines that our governments have in place today. Exactly. So very much important. And, and again, I, as far as I'm concerned, those questions don't just go away when you're talking about nuclear technology as a whole, because they are interconnected. All right. In the time that we have remaining, I want to talk a little bit about uh, sort of the ending of the book. But generally speaking, 
we can identify all of the areas where abolitionist work is being done, why it needs to be done, how it's being done, et cetera. But how do we start talking about building alternatives and building solutions? Because I know that's one of the key components of this book and one of the things you wanted to leave readers with. So how do we start talking about solutions and alternatives? I think one of the key things is really looking at the organizing that's being done. So this goes back to an earlier point um, that we were talking about, which is the the work of abolition is right now being done by communities who have been deliberately marginalized throughout history. Um, and so it's not that we have to reinvent things or come up with things from scratch. These ideas are already out there. There's there's so much material from, say, uh, the prison and police abolitionists on exactly what we need to invest in um, as an alternative, where we would take the money that we would take away from police forces, how we would build up um, alternatives to police in order to prevent the types of harms that are criminalized that then lead to incarceration. And so I think, you know, one of the one of the things the book tries to do at the end is really look at each of these movements, um, pull out some of the some of the dominant organizers um, and look at their materials and look at the relationship between um, the organizing that's being done and, and what could be pulled into to other spheres of work. And for those listeners who are thinking about, you know, how do I get myself involved in this kind of work, whether they're just a young aspiring activist or somebody that wants to branch out the work that they've been doing for decades, uh, what are some ways that you think people can engage in this kind of work, abolitionism on whatever the subject might be? Mm -hmm. So in the at the end of the book, there's a further resources section, um, which I tried to be quite comprehensive. Um, but of course, inevitably, we'll have left some resources out. But the idea there it provides um, books to read, articles to read, podcasts and webinars to watch, but also a list of organizations and coalitions and their websites that, um, that you can plug into. And I think one of the key things I always try to tell organizers, especially or activists that are you know, getting their feet wet on any of these issues is it can feel overwhelming because there's so much wrong, right, in our world. There's so many of these systems of oppression and they are interlinked, but it's hard to know where to start or where your energy is best placed. And so I think that picking something that you personally are passionate about um, and coming at it with the skills that you can bring uh, is the most important thing. It doesn't really matter which of these issues you work on. It could be another issue that's you know not covered in the book. The book is not comprehensive. It's meant to be a snapshot um, and a starting point uh, to, to thinking about how to bring some of these movements together. But really, it's just about finding your place, um, choosing something that you care about personally, and working with others who care personally too. Um, you know, none of this work uh, is is doable on our own. And Mariam Kaba, who's uh, a very excellent um, prison industrial complex uh, abolitionist organizer, she always talks about um, we can't do this work alone and we need to work in collectives. And I've learned that myself from the anti-nuclear work and the anti-war work. We need other people to sustain us. We need to help sustain other people. Um, we need to be able to work strategically, creatively, 
imaginatively together. We need to build up our own communities because so much of the effort of the structures of violence that we're opposing, whichever one it might be or all of them together, it's really about disrupting community, right? That's one thing that 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 those profiting from these systems really want is for us to all be struggling, separated, unable to uh, to confront the system in a coordinated way. And so building up community in that sense and a collective is really a revolutionary act in itself. Can I ask you before you go, how should we think about perceived failures as activists, as organizers, because that was something that really struck me in the first few years of the work, you know, getting into this sort of work, even just protesting against the Iraq war. It was such a joyous, uh, you know, experience. It was my first political thing that I ever really did. And we didn't stop that war. Million people more died, you know, and I mean, of course, it led us all on our own political trajectories. But this idea of failure, of of not being able to stop the evils that we see around us or not being able to do it in that moment. How how should we deal with this? How should we think about this? Because it does happen so, so often. Absolutely. Yeah. And it can it can fill us with despair. But I think that it's important to try not to see them as failures, but as attempts. Right. We tried to do something that didn't work. So we'll try to do something else. I think the fact that you were drawn into anti-war movement organizing from that experience is a success. Right. And so whoever on that individual level, but then feeding out to the collective level, that was important. I think that story is true for for a lot of folks that got engaged in the anti-war work then. And we can see it now with the climate movement as well, building, having its success moments, its visibility, but then also uh at this time, you know, watching the world uh, suffer from climate change and you can feel like, oh, we haven't accomplished anything. But the forces that we're up against are so strong and so economically and politically and militarily powerful that they can seem overwhelming. And so the only thing we can really do from our vantage point is to try everything possible, to keep throwing that mud at the wall and seeing what sticks um, and, and not giving up. Um, and we may need to, you know, take a step back, do other things, refocus. That's all fine, but that's the importance of having the collective to, to always carry the work forward. And I think, you know, as, as human beings, as, as people that, that live on this planet that are part of um, the overall system that has done all this damage to the planet, to, to people, to animals, to land, water and plants, we all have a responsibility to act. And I think that's one of the main things that I have learned in my work, drawing upon philosophers and organizers who really do, at their core, have a sense of accountability and responsibility. That if we're not trying uh, to change the system, then we are complicit with the system. It's, you know, it's the same thing in, in a personal setting. If you're not challenging your friends uh, saying racist things or sexist things, then you're really just kind of going along with it and you're perpetuating that system as opposed to if you speak up and say something. So from that micro level to the macro level, I think that's a really important lesson for all activists and organizers to hold on to, even in the face of despair. We might as well try. I couldn't agree more. We will have to leave it there. Ray Atchison was my guest today. Ray Atchison, thank you so much for coming on the show. The website, rayatchison.com, on Twitter, at Atchison Ray. The book, most important, get yourselves copies, Abolishing State Violence, A World Beyond Bombs, Borders, and Cages. Ray Atchison, thanks so much for chatting with us today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. 
Listeners, thank you as always for the continued support, and we will chat again next time.